0: Chapter 28 this morning. And so go ahead and grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew backs in front of you. You should see one of those black ESV Bibles around you there. We're going to be looking at the last probably eight or nine verses or so as we finish up the chapter. Isaiah's right smack dab in the middle of your Bible, if you were to just peel it open at about the 50% mark, you'd probably find it. The big numbers of the chapters, the small numbers, of the verse numbers, we're going to be in chapter 28, and we're going to be in verses 21 through 29 this morning. At the uh, end of the fourth century, there was a man by the name of John. John had become a Christian, had devoted himself to learning, had even devoted himself to a monastic, somewhat ascetic lifestyle. And during his time there, it became apparent that John had a gift of preaching. That as he began to teach and preach the word, others began to come. They wanted to hear his preaching. People were coming by God's grace to repent and believe in the gospel. The Lord was blessing the proclamation of the word through John such that they named him Chrysostom, Golden Tongue. Sounds like a James Bond movie. Golden Tongue was his name. And his fame spread throughout the whole eastern part of the empire such that Emperor Arcadius and his wife Eudoxia essentially kidnapped Chrysostom because Constantinople, which was the... the which was the capital of the eastern part of the kingdom at the time, couldn't stand not having the very best preacher in the land, not in their city. And so they essentially took him under duress, brought him to their city, until he, entrusting the Lord's providence, decided to stay there and, and minister to the people there. And in his time there, he became a champion of the poor. His preaching was really accessible. Most of his sermons are still, they're printable today and they're easy to read. It's amazing how accessible he is, especially when you consider much of what was there during the time. So he became a champion of the poor, but also as he called those to lose their life in order to gain it, as he called those to be last that they might be first in the kingdom, this began to ruffle the feathers among the upper crust in Constantinople, including Emperor Arcadia and especially his wife, Eudoxia, who was an incredibly vain woman. So from one side, Eudoxia was coming against Christostom, and on the other side, Bishop Theophilus from Alexandria, which had formerly been the most glorious place in Christendom, had started to fall into the shadow of Constantinople because of Chrysostom's reputation. And so, out of jealousy, Theophilus would come up from Alexandria and seek to depose Chrysostom. And he began to whisper into the ear of Eudoxia. And in time, they, they schemed against Chrysostom. They tried to get him removed and at one point the imperial army came up against his church and all of his congregants stood all day, 24 hours a day, days on end, to prevent them from coming into the church. And in verses 1 through 13, Isaiah is dealing with the northern kingdom of Israel. They had rejected God's intelligible word to them as nothing more than mere babbling, as the talking of a baby. And as a result, God tells them that he is next going to speak to them through the unintelligible words of an invading nation, that is the Assyrian Empire. And as a result, they're going to fall backwards, they're going to be broken, they're going to be snared, and they are going to be taken. And then in verse 14, Isaiah turns his attention to the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah had fallen into a false sense of assurance. And they're thinking pretty well about themselves when they see Assyria come against the northern kingdom because they had made a pact with Assyria. The northern kingdom, an alliance with Syria, wanted to come down and attack Judah and Jerusalem. They wanted to depose Ahaz and put a puppet king in his place so that they could control the southern kingdom. And knowing that they're a little bitty... And then Assyria is a big boy on the block. They made a pact with Assyria. You protect us, we'll give you fealty, we'll give you tribute. You keep that northern kingdom off our back and we will give honor to you. Well, Isaiah tells them that the covenant that they made with Assyria was not a covenant with peace, but rather in verse 15, it was a covenant with death. Because all the while, Assyria had their fingers crossed behind their back, and they were going to take a hard left once they reached the capital of Ephraim, and they were going straight down for the neck of Jerusalem. But rather than make God their refuge, rather than make God their hiding place, they made lies and falsehood their refuge and their hiding place. You see that there in the second half of 15. Therefore, what God promises to do is to sweep away all of their false assurances, And God says in verse 16, that he has, perfect tense, I've already done it. I have laid a foundation in Zion, a precious cornerstone. That unlike Judah's rickety refuge of lies, this cornerstone is going to be a sure foundation. And as we saw all the way back in chapter 8 of of Isaiah, Israel will either rest upon this stone or they're going to stumble over this stone. Either the stone will be a shelter to them or it will crush them. And we know from the New Testament that this precious cornerstone is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The folly of the kingdom of Israel is instructive for us today. God's word must be heard and heeded if we will not hear and we will not hear heed the word of God then God's word to us will become God's word against us and all of our false assurances and all of our false senses of security will be swept away and God will say to us as he said to Israel depart from me you workers of iniquity for I knew you not These words of judgment, anywhere we find it in the Bible, are really words of mercy warning us, in spite of however put together we may appear on the outside from inwardly on the level of our own hearts, trusting in ourselves, in our own wisdom, in our own power, rather than in the wisdom and the power of God. Because if we are confirmed ultimately in hypocrisy on that day, none of us will be able to say, well, I didn't know. None of us will be able to say, well, you didn't give me enough information. No, the Lord will say to us, as he says to Israel, you have made your bed, now you lie in it. Look at verse 20. The bed is too short to stretch oneself out on, and the covering, too narrow to wrap oneself in. Judah did not rest in the cornerstone, but rather rested in false alliances with the world. The bed in which they hope to find comfort will provide no comfort because it's too short. And the blanket that they hope to find security, that security blanket will provide no security because their security blanket is too narrow. And that's because God, as we see in verse 21, is about to do a strange work. It says, the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim in the Valley of Gibeon. He'll be roused to do his deed, a strange deed, and to work his work, an alien work. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, these two places, Mount Perizim and the Valley of Gibeon, are mentioned in the same breath, within five verses of one another. And what they do is they represent two successive victories by David against the Philistines. And in that passage, 2 Chronicles 5, or rather Second Samuel 5, David proclaims, the Lord has broken through. That's what Baal Perizim means, the Lord breaking through. That in that day, God was roused and he did the work of breaking through his enemies on behalf of his people. In the power of God's strength, he broke the backs of the Philistines and he delivered and saved Israel. So now Isaiah says, God is gonna break through again, only this time not as an act of deliverance, but as an act of destruction. God is essentially telling Judah that I'm gonna treat you like a Philistine, because of your scoffing unbelief. And he says, this judgment coming against you, this destruction is God's strange work. And what he means by that, as I hope to prove here in the next few minutes that by speaking of it as a strange work or an alien work is to say that it is a work that indeed does come from God, but it is not the work that God preeminently delights in. Let me just show you what I mean. Put your little ribbon or your finger or your pen right here in Isaiah 28. And I want you to go to your right just a little bit to the other side of Jeremiah to the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. It's snucked away, snugged away right there in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Lamentations, chapter 3. We'll pick it up all the way back in verse 31. The Lord, it says, will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth. To deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High. To subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Here, the author, presumably Jeremiah, is heartsick over the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, and it was carnage. And he pours out his heart in a series of five poems that are marked out by five chapters. Chapters 1 and chapter 5 each have 22 verses, they're acrostic. That is, each, each line starting with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But the third poem, right here in chapter 3, has three times that number, 66 verses. And the very middle of this poem, verse 33, is the high point of the entire book. And it's this, he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Dane Ortland is helpful when he summarizes it this way, that when we speak of what God does or does not do from his heart, We're not limiting a sovereign rule more broadly, right? We just read that who has spoken and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not the mouth of the most high that good and bad come? God is sovereign over all things. So when he he says when we speak of what God does or does not do from his heart, we're not limiting a sovereign rule more broadly. No, he says indeed to the degree that we believe God is sovereign in all our affliction, to that degree we are able to be comforted that he does not afflict us from his heart. What Dane is referring to is referred to commonly as the doctrine of God's providence. We studied this when we went through Genesis and the life of Joseph. The way that we summarized it was that God's providence is essentially God's sovereignty for us. It is his kingly rule over all things for us the good of his people, and for his glory. Moving all things to those glorious ends. The old Belgic Confession puts it this way. This doctrine, it says, gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious heavenly Father who watches over us with fatherly care, sustaining all creatures under his lordship, so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they're all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of the Father. What the author of Lamentations is affirming is, on the one hand, that God is the one who afflicts us, but on the other hand, He does not do so from His heart. That is, that God doesn't preeminently delight in bringing affliction. The same thing is said in Ezekiel chapter 18. Turn to your right just a little bit more. Ezekiel chapter 18. Beginning in verse 32. Look at what he says. I'll go back to verse 30 for context. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have commanded and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Then get this, verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. God does not preeminently delight in judgment. We see here that God's desire is that they turn from sin and trust in Him and His promises. But that does not mean that he will not judge. And that does not mean that it's not a work that he doesn't delight in. It's just not God's preeminent delight. What Isaiah is saying here is essentially the same thing that Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach, reach repentance. The old Puritan Jonathan Edwards said it this way, God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He had rather they turn and continue in peace. He is well pleased if they forsake their evil ways, that he may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a God that delights in mercy, and judgment is his strange work. Of course, Edwards is using the same language as we just saw in Isaiah chapter 28. So it seems that God doesn't delight in judgment, or does He? That God delights in mercy, and is He reluctant for judgment? How should we think about this? Turn all the way to your left to Deuteronomy 28. We've been spending a lot of time in this chapter over the last few weeks. Deuteronomy 28. And what we're doing is we're trying to think about how is Judgment, the strange work of God. How is it that he doesn't preeminently delight in judgment, but rather preeminently delights in grace and mercy? And yet we read this in verse 63. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will, get this, take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. Okay, wait a minute. So which one is it? Does he or doesn't he delight in bringing ruin and calamity on people? How do we think about this? Does God kind of have two minds? Does he, is he in internal conflict with himself all the time? How do we understand these things? That God would be a God that delights in both mercy and delights in judgment when we just read in Lamentations chapter 3 that he doesn't do so afflict out of his heart. Justice and judgment is God's strange work because God delights most in magnifying his mercy and they're necessary, these strange works, for the divine purpose of magnifying his goodness and his grace to the whole world, but especially his elect. That in order for God to do his normal work, God has to do his strange work. For you men who either are engaged, have been engaged, or are now married, you know what it is to go shopping for a wedding ring. And you go to the store, as I did, and you find the ring that you like, and they put it on this little black velvet cloth, and they talk to you about the four C's that I can't remember for the life of me, clarity cut, something, something, something. And they put it on there and they want you to look at how that diamond sparkles and how clear it is. And they want you to look at it from all the different angles. God's mercy is kind of like that. But you only see the sparkling glory of God's mercy and grace against the black velvet of God's justice and judgment. The one serves to amplify and to magnify the other. Both are necessary. And this is exactly the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 9. Everybody's favorite chapter, Romans chapter 9. Last place we'll turn. So turn to your right to the New Testament, Romans chapter 9. And we're trying to think about how do we consolidate these ideas of God delighting in judgment, delighting in mercy, and yet delighting in mercy preeminently and judgment delighting in it because it serves, it is subservient to His glory in showing mercy and grace. How do we think about this? I think this is really what Paul's trying to get at for all the controversy that surrounds Romans chapter 9 and the discomfort that many people have in reading it. It's really about solving this conundrum. How can God delight in both judgment and mercy at the same time? Pick it up in verse 22. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He's just saying the same thing that Peter said. He's not slow as some people count slowness. God works slowly and methodically according to his perfect wisdom in all of his judgments and in all of his discipline. Verse 23, in order, here's the purpose. Why does he endure with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order... Here's the purpose, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. The wrath and the justice of God against his appointed vessels of wrath, that is his strange work, magnify the riches of his glory toward his appointed vessels of mercy, that is his natural work, that is his preeminent delight. God delights in his judgments because they magnify his mercy. And that's exactly what we see in Isaiah 28. The point of Romans 9 is that there is nothing that compels God to be merciful to you or to me or to anybody else other than his free and preeminent desire to magnify his own glorious grace. So Dane Ortland concludes, left to our own natural intuitions about God, we would include that mercy is his strange work and that judgment his natural work. Rewiring our vision of God as we study the Scripture, as we've just done in these brief few moments, we see that judgment is His strange work, and mercy is His natural work. He delights in both, but He preeminently delights in mercy. Go back to Isaiah 28. Pull that ribbon out. This God who will do a strange deed yet delights preeminently, ultimately in mercy, we see in verse 22, manifest that mercy through a warning. Now, therefore, he says, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong, for I've heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Therefore, give ear, hear my voice, give attention, and hear my speech. That phrase there, give ear, hear my voice. It's common language in Israel's wisdom literature. You see it all throughout the Proverbs. The same exhortation as a father would give to his son, it's the same exhortation that wisdom gives, promising to give herself to all who give her their ear. It's an invitation to to grow in wisdom through repentance and trust in the Lord. Not ironically, in Israel's wisdom literature, scoffers also play a a prominent role. Because it's the scoffers that refuse to hear. That's why Isaiah uh, couples do not scoff with give ear and hear my voice. Scoffers refuse to hear. Scoffers think they know better. Scoffers think that the word of God is nothing more than mere babble, that they have all that they need in and of themselves in their own power, strength, and wisdom. Scoffers cannot be corrected. They cannot be rerouted. They will not turn around because they will not give ear and hear the voice of the Lord. Well, here's the proverb that follows. It's a parable, so to speak, of planting. It's a farming parable, and it sounds a lot like what Jesus says throughout the Gospels. He says first in verses 24 to 26, does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open up and harrow his ground? The answer is no. There's a season to do these things and there's a season to do other things, but he doesn't plow indefinitely. He doesn't dig holes indefinitely. He doesn't dig lines indefinitely. He doesn't sow seed indefinitely. There's a season for that. And when he's leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill and sow cumin and put wheat and rose and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border? He's rightly instructed as God teaches him. He is doing all that he knows to do in the way that God has ordered the world. That plowing is important for sowing. Anybody that's a farmer knows that. But before you plant, you got to plow. Plow. The point of these handful of verses here is that plowing is planned, it's deliberate, it's not arbitrary, that it's done carefully and thoughtfully in a measured manner with very explicit purposes in mind. It has a goal. And in the same way that plowing and planting are carefully planned events, so is threshing, beginning in verse 27. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is cartwheel rolled over cumin. Dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he doesn't thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. Threshing, like plowing and planting, has a purpose. But I want you to notice in verse 27 and 28 the mention of the threshing sledge and the cartwheel and the stick and the rod in verse 27. And all of that is to point out that careful threshing requires just the right kinds of tools for the job. That if you come in with too much horsepower, you're gonna do more damage than you intend. And if you come in with less than what you need, you're not gonna accomplish your purposes. God is saying... In the same way that I have planted you, in the same way that I have caused you to bear fruit, although it's now stinky fruit, that was Isaiah chapter 4. Now I'm going to thresh you. And I know exactly how much you need, and I know exactly what to use to accomplish my goals. It's not arbitrary. I'm not going to bring upon you one more ounce of pressure than is necessary to accomplish my purposes in you. I'm going to use all the right tools for the job, so to speak. In verse 29, the plowing and the planting and the threshing, as we see, is all from God according to the wisdom of his counsel. It comes from the Lord of hosts. His counsel is wonderful and his wisdom is excellent. It's not ultimately the Assyrians and the Babylonians that are threshing you, Isaiah says. It's God. Assyria and Babylon are just secondary causes. God is the primary cause. And this is exactly what should give God's elect, those believing Israelites, comfort in the midst of affliction. I want to close our time with a meditation on how God afflicts us for our good. As seems to be so clearly the point of this passage, with Isaiah speaking to the southern kingdom that God has wise and wonderful purposes behind not only the planting and the plowing, but the threshing. That salvation is gonna come through judgment, but judgment is his strange deed. It's not what he preeminently delights in, but he does delight in it because it serves what he preeminently delights in, and that is the magnification of his mercy in the nations. And I think we find Judah's appropriate response should be our appropriate response. And the first response is in verse 22, therefore do not scoff. To scoff is to hear God's word and ultimately reject it as something other than the word of Almighty God. Friend, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, if you're here today and you're skeptical about this idea of God, much less a God that speaks to us through a book, or that God came and became a man and the person and the work of a first century rabbi named Jesus, And that his dying on a cross wasn't an accident of history because he couldn't run fast enough, but was planned from before the foundations of the world according to his wise counsel so that he might save for himself a people for his own possession and glory. That if you find all of that a little far-fetched and you don't see in yourself a need really to turn from sin or that you even have sin to begin with and to throw yourself on the mercy of this God then there will come a day where the only work of God that you will know is his strange work. Friend, I implore you to turn from your sin and trust in Christ that you might be able to taste and see that the Lord is good and see how he preeminently delights in taking sinners like you and making them clean, forgiving them of all of their sins, of declaring them righteous in their son, not because of anything that you can do, but because of what Christ has done in your place willingly. That to trust in Christ is to be bound to him and to have his life become your life, his righteousness become your righteousness, to stand before the Father with a clean conscience because you have been declared righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. But to reject Christ will be to one day stand before him as a scoffer and to see your, bond, your bonds made strong. And rather than to, to hear a decree of pardon, all you will hear is a decree of destruction. Friend, it is God's mercy to warn you today of coming destruction that you would turn and trust in Christ. But I don't think that this warning against scoffing is just for those who have openly and willfully rejected God and the gospel. I think it's also for each one of us, those of us who would profess to know Christ and to trust Him. That we may not be able to recall very many times in our lives where we scoff with our lips. We say all the right things. We sing on Sunday, but perhaps with our lives we scoff on Monday. It's more of a functional scoffing of an hypocrisy between a public religious life and a private life at home, of singing all the right songs and saying all the right things and appearing in all the right ways to all the right kinds of people, and yet failing and having no desire to love God and to lay down your lives for others on Monday that I fear that there will be many when Christ comes that say, look at all the things that we did for you, and he goes, I don't even know who you are. Your life is a life of scoffing. Friends, it is imperative that you and I press into one another, that we know one another in such a way that we can encourage and exhort one another as we see that day coming, so that all of us might be able to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in that day knowing that while yet imperfectly, we have thrown ourselves privately and publicly onto the mercy of the Son of God. Texts like this are God's mercy to us so that we would go home and examine ourselves and go, if someone had a hidden camera in my house and heard the way that I talked or didn't talk and the way that I acted, would they be shocked when they see the way that I conduct myself at Sunday service or in Bible study. It may not be that we scoff with our lips. It may be that our scoffing comes in the hypocrisy of our lives, to which Jesus would say, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Texts like this are God's mercy to his people do not scoff. Make sure that your public life and your private life are aligned according to God's Word by God's grace. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means there's going to be lots of repenting and lots of running to Jesus and lots of pressing into Him and lots of leaning into brothers and sisters in the church and walking together and not wearing a mask. I mean that in a COVID sense. I mean the masks that we often wear every Sunday when we come to church. To be able to take those off and walk authentically that is in such a way that is consistent with the grace of the gospel, both publicly and privately. Friends, I need this warning every bit as much as you need this warning, lest I stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day and boast in all the things that I've done for him, and yet he say, yeah, those were some pretty good sermons, but I don't even know who you are. There's a godly and a holy fear that should come from the warning against scoffing and that by God's grace would lead us to grow more and more, both in our private lives and our public lives, into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we think and how we speak and how we serve. May the Lord make that happen. But I also finally want to talk about and apply this text with respect to those moments when we face affliction. King David was a man that was well acquainted with affliction. In one such instance when as he put it, God's quote stroke was upon him, this is how he lamented. I am mute I do not open my mouth, for it is you, speaking to God, who have done it. David's divinely inspired response to this divinely sourced discipline is instructive for us. That David's silence in the face of affliction isn't from despair, but it was from a holy and a humble disposition before God. And this holy and humble disposition that is the opposite of grumbling and complaining and accusing springs from no less than five truths five truths that you and I must likewise embrace if we're to share David's disposition in our afflictions and in our sufferings five truths that were true not only of David but we see in the lives of the greater in the life of the greater David our Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, a holy and humble disposition in affliction knows that everything comes from God's hand. It knows that everything comes from God's hand. David said, I am mute, you have done it. There is no affliction in your life, big or small, from chronic illness to a stubbed toe. From job losses to miscarriages to lengthy seasons of depression, nothing that does not come from God's hand to us according to his wise counsel. But how often when we're afflicted by these and many other things do we complain to God or accuse God or even try to get God off the hook by minimizing or dismissing his sovereignty? Well, it's really not God, that's just the devil. It's really not God, it's just the free will of sinners in the world. But it can't be God and we're so concerned with getting God off the hook that we minimize his sovereignty to where God becomes little bitty not God. How are we to respond? We learn from David that dismissing God's sovereignty is always to our detriment and accepting it is always to our good. The old Puritan Thomas Brooks said it this way, that if God's hand be not seen in affliction, the heart will do nothing but fret and rage under affliction. In other words, what affliction does in our lives is convince us that we are not in control of our lives. Affliction always convinces us that our lives are out of control. And if there is not something bigger and stronger than us, or rather someone bigger and stronger than us, that is sovereign over all of it, ultimately working every ounce of affliction for our good and His glory, then we will fret and rage because it's the only response that we know to a world spinning out of control. But as Thomas Brooks says, if God's hand isn't seen in affliction, then we will do nothing but fret and rage. Friends, are you afflicted? Are you fretting? Have you raged against God and others? Perhaps it's because you've not seen God's hand in affliction. So everything in affliction comes from God's hand. Secondly, a holy and humble disposition in affliction beholds God as holy. It beholds God as holy. Habakkuk 2.20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Zephaniah 1.7, be silent before the Lord God. Most often, we shout and we complain against God when we're afflicted because we have too low a view of God and too high a view of ourselves. We assume one of two things, that either God can prevent us from being afflicted, but he doesn't, he's all-powerful, but he's not all-good, or God can't prevent afflictions from coming into our lives, even though he really wishes that he could, in which case he's all-good, but he's just not all-powerful. So God is either evil or he's weak. Friends, such a God is not worthy of your worship. Minimizing the sovereignty of God or the goodness of God is not worthy of your worship. You're right to question a God such as that. You're right to rage against a God such as that because that is not God. No, such a God is not worthy of your worship, especially in times of affliction. That if you look at the hand of God as a weak or a mean hand, then your heart will rise against God's hand like Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? But if you look upon God in affliction like Aaron, and like Job, and like Eli, and like Paul, and like Jesus you'll see that God's hand is both all good and all powerful. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he would exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You will never humble yourself or be silent under the hand of God until you come to see the hand of God as an all-powerful hand and the heart of God as an all-good heart. Number three, a holy and humble disposition comes when God's holiness steadies our hearts. It's easy, isn't it, to allow fretting and grumbling and frustration to snowball in our hearts and run away with it. But those responses toward affliction don't ultimately arise in affliction. You realize all that stuff was in your heart before. What suffering and trials and tribulations and affliction that come from God ultimately do is they provide the occasion for us to see the condition of our heart most clearly. That our hearts are often unsubmissive and proud. Right now, if you were to show up to my house, you would see I have three giant trees on the western side of the property. I have a giant pecan tree. I have a giant burr oak, which produces these mutant acorns. Have you seen them? They're like this big. Had to take them all out before I mow the lawn. And then I have a live oak, which is not fun when it sheds in the winter. But they're big trees. They've been there for a long time. And during the summertime, they're thick with leaves and you can't see anything within it. But then when winter comes, And all of that cold and bitter wind comes and all of those outward leaves are removed. Now you can see everything that's in the trees, all of the nests and everything else. So it is with our own hearts. Affliction are those cold winds that God brings into our lives so that we can So he can sweep away, as he did with Judah, all of our false assurances and all of our false confidences and that we can see our hearts for what they really are so that we might turn and trust in him instead. Friends, we would never choose such afflictions for our own lives. And because of that, we often don't understand why God would do so. But just because you can't see how anything good can come from your suffering does not mean that there's no good reason for your suffering. God knows everything you don't. God sees everything you don't. God is all-powerful and all-good, and you are not. And your all-knowing, all-seeing God is good when he afflicts you and is sovereign over their purposes in your life. And so when we are quick to recall God's sovereignty and goodness in our affliction, we can say with David in Psalm 62, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, and I shall not be greatly shaken. You understand that is ultimately what God is trying to do through whatever trials and afflictions he brings into our lives is to get us away from Isaiah 28:15 lies of refuge and falsehoods in which we take shelter so that we would say God alone it's who I wait for. For him alone he is my rock. He alone is my salvation. He alone is my fortress. And in him alone on this precious cornerstone, this glorious foundation I'll never be shaken. It's to wean you off of the world and to wean you off of yourself so that you might cling more tightly to Christ. Oh, God is so good in his strange work in our lives. Do you believe that? Fourthly, A holy and a humble disposition doesn't blame God. Psalm 119.75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. When David was afflicted, he showed great care, showed that the Lord was blameless in his afflictions. He's saying there's not one speck of cruelty or injustice in God. Thomas Brooks again puts it this way. A holy silence shines in nothing more than in a humble justifying and clearing of God from all that which a corrupt heart is apt enough to charge God with in the day of affliction. God, in that he is good, can give nothing nor do nothing but that which is good. Do you believe that in your affliction? Fifthly and finally, a holy and a humble disposition draws godly conclusions about their afflictions. Draws godly conclusions about their afflictions. I'm going to have you turn one more place in your Bible, Lamentations chapter 3 once again. And I want you to see how Jeremiah, presumably, looking at the utter destruction of the life of the people whom he loves, the conclusions that he draws about God. And I want to encourage you that these are the same conclusions that need to be conditioned into your own mind and your own heart. And if right now, by God's kind providence, you are not under any kind of affliction or trial, anything severe, These are the times to begin preparing yourself for those times. And if you are in affliction, if you are currently facing trials, these are the conclusions that by God's grace you need to press into and cling to and white knuckle until the Lord in His timing brings you out. Look at Lamentations 3, verse 27. We see, first of all, our first conclusion is that every affliction must work for our good. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. He's saying it's good that we face these trials. It's good that heavy burdens fall upon us. It's good that the Lord brings them, ultimately because he works all those things for our good and for his glory. Now, I realize that when we're suffering the easy... easy, answer is to say, hey, listen, I know you're suffering, I know things are hard. Listen, all things work together for your good, according to his purposes. And there is, on the one hand, a way in which we need to be measured and wise with our words. Sometimes, speaking true things isn't always the things we need to be speaking in any given moment. However, I also think that because our hearts are proud and so prone to rage when we're suffering, to complain and grumble that when somebody comes and says that we'll dismiss it as a mere platitude because really we don't want to have to turn from our grumbling and complaining and our raging this is no trite truth there's never an inappropriate circumstance to be reminded that all things work for good according to those whom God loves and who are called according to his purposes. That truth is never trite, it's never cliche, and it's never inappropriate for any circumstance. We just need to pray that the Lord gives us wisdom to know when and how to speak those things. But secondly, so we've seen that every affliction must work for our good. Secondly, we conclude that every affliction aims to humble us. Look at verses 28 and 29. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Speaking of the one who's under burdens in verse 27. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. That God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Have you ever thought that God afflicts you to humble you, and He humbles you to give grace to you so that you might grow in knowing and enjoying Him in all things. Our automatic, pres- the way that we think about ourselves, we need to presume first that we're probably proud and not humble, and trust that all of God's afflictions can, in some ways, make us more humble and thus more eager to receive God's grace. Thirdly, we conclude that all afflictions are temporary. Look at 31. The Lord will not cast off forever. It can feel when you're in the moment of of trial and tribulation that it's never going to end. And that may be true. It may not end in this life. But brother and sister, listen to me. Every single trial that you face in this life, all of your suffering has an expiration date. Just like that old milk in your fridge. And if it's not in this life, it will be when Christ comes again. And in the meantime, we have the privilege of enjoying fellowship with Christ, as Paul put it, in His sufferings. There's joy to be had in bitter providence because it draws us closer to Christ. And we trust in the same way that God raised Christ from the dead, so he will do the same for us. And in the same way, he glorified his son, so we will be glorified because we have trusted in him. Oh, friends, all afflictions are temporary. Fourthly, verse 32, we conclude that God will show compassion. But though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. It can feel in the moments of affliction like God is being mean. But what he's doing is providing a circumstance to magnify the abundance of his steadfast love, to magnify your enjoyment and experience of his compassion, which never fails and never changes. God will show compassion. Fifthly and finally, so we've seen four conclusions that we want to draw about our afflictions they must all work for our good every affliction aims to humble us all afflictions are temporary god will show compassion fifthly and finally we want to conclude that afflictions are god's strange work as isaiah taught god does not afflict from the heart or grieve the children of men that if we're able to draw these five conclusions by God's grace, both out and in times of affliction, then we will be able to say with Job, God knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out like gold. Brother, are you being tried? Sister, are you being afflicted? Are you bearing burdens? Is it heavy on you? You will, because you belong to King Jesus, be refined in this process and you will come out more precious than gold. That's what William Bridge concludes. He says this, and I'll make it my final word. Affliction is a bag of gold Given unto the people of God. Though it seems like a leather bag on the outside, ugly, rough, there's gold on the inside. So long as they stand poring over, obsessing on the leather bag, or attend only under the smart of their affliction, they are not thankful. They do not praise the Lord and they are much discouraged. Oh, but if they would look into the bag and they would count their gold, then they would have comfort and not be discouraged. I tell you, from the Lord, there is gold within. Look in the bag, the bag of affliction. Count over all the gold which the Lord has given you in this affliction. Then you will be quiet. Let's pray.